Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one, just page of Talmud. On today's page, Psachim 75, we read about a woman who has transgressed against the laws of the Torah and is being executed. The rabbis then discuss the manner of her execution. When executing someone, the Talmud tells us, select for him a kind death. Even when someone must be executed, his dignity should be protected. He should be executed in the most comfortable way possible. As someone who is deeply opposed to the death penalty, this passage troubled me. And so I feel privileged to welcome to the show one of my personal heroes. She is Sister Helen Prejean, the author of the book Dead Men Walking, which was turned into a motion picture starring Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn, and one of our clearest and strongest voices in moral opposition to the death penalty. Sister Helen, thank you so much for being our guest today. I've always had great admiration for the tablet. Glad to be a part of this. The pleasure is all mine. And I want to start off with the the most general question. You know, th- there are many political issues on which I'm open-minded and sort of giddily unorthodox. But the death penalty is really one I feel very strongly about. I, I, I will be very honest. I see it as an almost, you know, as an absolute moral evil. And as our clearest and most courageous voice in this issue, assuming some of our listeners out there are of two minds, you know, generally uneasy about the whole notion of execution, but moved by, maybe moved by the descriptions of the convict's horrible crimes to consider the possibility of, of death row. I assume this is, this is one of these questions that you get very frequently, but, but how do you address someone who is genuinely conflicted about this topic? Everybody is conflicted. First of all, because of the outrage we feel at the death of innocent people. I mean, we do have to attend to that. There is moral outrage in hearing about a mother hijacked, carjacked with her children and and brutally killed. We can't pass over that. We have to attend to it. And it is outrage we feel at the crime. But also in our souls is the inviolable dignity of each human life. But we have to get there with people who have done murder. I had a wonderful editor that helped me shape the story in Dead Man Walking. And in the first draft, I concentrated too much, too long, on simply the human rights of the person who should not be executed. And my editor said to me, if you do not attend in the first 10 pages to the horror of the crime that this man, Patrick Sonier, and his brother killing two teenage kids in cold blood shooting them point blank in the back of the head and show your own outrage. Nobody is going to follow you into, finally, the humanity of the one to be executed. We shouldn't do that. So I want to say everybody has a certain amount of ambivalence about the death penalty. On the one hand, look at the horror of the crime. What is justice and what does that person deserve? And then on the other hand, who are we as a society? And let's just look and see now what we have set in motion to decide that some of these people should die. You have written at length about, about your own spiritual journey. One thing that I've heard you say in several interviews, which which always struck me as, as so profoundly moving, and I've meditated on this frequently, is you saying to the men you meet on death row, you are more than your most terrible deed containing, as you just said, the truth and the difficulty of of the horrible crimes. How do we get to the point in which we could look at a person 
and say this? What kind of work spiritually must be done? Yes. And the work of us who have been witnesses say, my job really has been to be a witness to what I've seen. And when I visited with the first man, the very first man that I visited on death row, Patrick Sonier, he, the one who had killed two teenage kids, I have to tell you, I was nervous as I waited. The guards had taken me to the waiting room and locked me in and said, we'll go get your man. And I was nervous about him because I thought, well, I've never really talked for two hours to a murderer before, and he's written nice letters, but I'm going to actually look into his eyes and meet him in person. And when I saw his face, the first thing was, oh, my God, he's a human being. The humanity was clearly there. He was a human being. And that gave rise, there's a transcendence in human beings, this inviolable dignity that human beings can always change, can always grow. And that no human being can be identified solely with any action, good as well as bad, that we are all, when it comes to doing bad things, worth more than that one terrible act. And I saw it. It was deep. It was existential. It never left me. And so I always say that to them. And when I write to them, I say to them, remember, you have a dignity that no one can take from you. You are a son of God or a daughter of God. And I just think it's an absolute truth, but you existentially have to come to it. One of the reasons we still have the death penalty is that people are separated from actually witnessing what it means for the government to take an alive human being, no matter how much he or she has grown, no matter how much they've deepened, no matter how remorseful they are. One time I had a guard say to me in the death house, The man we're killing tonight is a different man from that young, brash animal that came screaming in this prison, cursing God and everybody, and who it is that we're killing tonight. So it's this thing of the inviolable dignity, which, of course, after 1,300 years of dialogue, the Catholic Church has reached in Pope Francis in August 2018, changing the catechism and recognizing that we can never give over to government, that power to decide that there are some acts that human beings, that citizens commit where they can make a decision to kill them. Never. You can never give government that power. I'm glad you brought this up. I want to talk a little bit about the differences maybe in our in our faith tradition, like everything else in, in rabbinic Judaism. This issue, too, of the death penalty is a highly complex one. Uh, famously, it was said that back in the time when Jews were governed by the Sanhedrin or the sort of quorum of 70 rabbis who adjudicated over all communal matters, if that Sanhedrin put one man to death once in seven years, it was called a murderous Sanhedrin. And there's there's a really big discussion between the rabbis. Some of them seem to think in the Talmud that killing a person, no matter for what infraction, even though the tradition says that there are sins for which the death penalty is the only suitable punishment, And other rabbis say, no, we need to have uh, the death penalty on the books as a sort of deterrent, but we also have to be deeply mindful that this is a measure that we use extremely sporadically, if ever. When you come across this kind of inner argument and and thinking about it from the dialogue that the Catholic Church itself has, has had around that or internal dialogue that the Catholic Church itself has had around this issue, Does this conversation resonate with you? Uh, Tell us a little bit about how you see the difference between our two faith traditions. 
Well, there's a similarity, of course. Anyone who makes law is trying to set boundaries beyond this point, no further. Or up to this point is where we draw a line on this side, life on this side, death. And where it gets to be unscrutable, of course, that we cannot figure out, no matter how we try to delineate our theory of these crimes that deserve death, we immediately come into questions. Now, which murders don't deserve death? When Gregory, Georgia, in the United States in 1976, put the death penalty back, supposedly they gave a criteria that was really impossible, and nobody has really known what it meant. It's only to be reserved, they said, for the worst of the worst murders, and nobody knows what that means. I mean, if anyone kills my mother, unique, irreplaceable human being, it is the worst of the worst. So supposedly, they were going to put out guidelines to guide juries so that they wouldn't be giving death for, in quotes, ordinary murders, garden variety murders. And it's impossible. So first, the criteria was impossible that they said. And then the other thing that made it unworkable, I just wrote in the Nation magazine, gave discretionary power to prosecutors to go for death or not. And we just witnessed Trump and Attorney General Barr going for death because they had the discretionary power to do so. People were on death row. They had been sentenced. It was up to them to start the death machine or not. And for 17 years, the Attorney General in the United States had not moved to execute people. But because they had the discretionary power... They decided to, and they killed 13 human beings. The last one, just five days before Biden would come into office, who we knew would not execute. He declared that he was against the death penalty and was going to be in federal execution. So you get into all these vagaries and fallible aspects of human beings that enter into the process. On paper, it might seem good and righteous. But in actuality, when you go to carry it out, it's impossible. And so when you read a page uh, like the page we read today in Talmud that uh, discusses a person who is sentenced to death for transgressions, and one of the rabbis say, we must remember the verse, and you shall love your fellow as yourself. And and the, the Talmud continues to say, when executed someone, select for him a kind death. Even when someone must be executed, his dignity should be protected. He should be executed in the most comfortable way possible. Does that resonate in any way, or is that some, uh, or is that to you an, an attempt to avoid the more profound notion of whether or not the execution should have taken place in the first place? No, it absolutely resonates, because you have, once you enter into this whole mindset that they're going to allow the government to execute, there are some thinking it should be as painful as possible, because look at the pain, and always making that false equivalency of we use the pain that they inflicted on their victims to determine how we act. So this thing of pain or no pain, in fact, when lethal injection was introduced, one of the arguments given was it was going to be more humane, more humane than being electrocuted with 1,900 volts going through your body, more humane than hanging, more humane than being shot. And you start going through all these methods of killing people that you'll just be put to sleep. Problem emerges almost immediately 
that who are the people putting the drugs together to kill a human being in a way that they are not going to wake up and be in excruciating pain when the potassium chloride, which is the most lethal, like an acid, goes and hits their heart, that they're so deeply under they don't feel it. But then you had someone like Justice Scalia, a Catholic Supreme Court justice, who just said in the discussions about whether or not lethal injection was painful or not, he said they're supposed to feel pain. And that's that mentality of they deserve what they get, and pain is part of what we want to inflict on them. But the deepest traditions, in all the spiritual traditions, when you go back and in the Torah, be holy as I am holy, and God's holiness is around loving your neighbor as yourself, to look out for the widow and the orphan. It's around compassionate. Be compassionate as your heavenly Father is compassionate, is Jesus. And Jesus brought it even further, saying, to love not only your neighbor as yourself, but your enemies. That hatred won't overcome you so that you become like the enemy and become persons of rage and vengeance and wanting to do to them what they did to you. And so it's very resonant with me, this whole thing of to kill them with kindness. I think that comes out of in any legal scholar who would be looking at it in the discussion. We want to be as kind as possible, but in reality, to kill, deliberately kill a conscious, imaginative human being who anticipates death and dies inside a thousand times before they die. It can never be compassionate. In fact, it's the practice of torture because the definition of torture in the UN Convention Against Torture specifies that the nature of torture is an extreme mental or physical act on someone rendered defenseless. And so when you're taken from your cell and walked across a room and strapped down and killed, how can you not say that this is an extreme mental torture, that these are the last minutes of my life? I'm going to say goodbye to everything I know on earth that's being taken from me. There is no way that we can ever impose a death, no matter how kindly we say we're going to do it or compassionately, because you can never take away that extreme mental torture of death being imposed on the person rendered defenseless. Sister Helen, there are tears in my eyes and hope in my heart and deep, deep, deep gratitude to you for everything that you've done and for everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for being our guest. I have to do it. I got a moral imperative because of what I've seen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. This has been Take One, a production of Tablet Magazine. If you enjoy this show, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafiomi. I'm your host, Leah Liebowitz. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Paul Ruest. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash take one or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope we've made your day a little bit more Talmudic, and we'll see you again soon.